Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled On Confession. It's based upon the lectionary readings for October 27, 2019. In this week's gospel reading, Jesus tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Two men go up to the temple to pray. The first is a Pharisee a religious insider who serves a vital leadership role in the spiritual life of his community. In the guise of a heartfelt thank you, he makes a personal progress report to God. I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers. He then humble brags about his pious lifestyle. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Presumably, he leaves the temple feeling exactly the same way he feels when he walks in. Just fine. No growth. No change. The second man is a tax collector, a collaborator with the Roman Empire, and a traitor to his own people. He stands far off, beats his chest, and refuses to raise his head towards heaven. He prays just one line, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But Jesus concludes that it is the tax collector and not the Pharisee who goes home justified. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. On its face, this is a very simple parable. It feels silly to interpret it when its message is so obvious. But here's the trap, expressed as a prayer I am sorely tempted to pray in response. Lord, I thank you that I am nothing like the obnoxious caricature of a human being who is the Pharisee in your story. Thank you that I've arrived at a point in my faith journey where I am much more like the tax collector, self-aware, emotionally intelligent, mindful, cognizant, teachable, humble, and woke. Yikes. I don't know many people, religious or secular, who like the word sinner. Many Christians, particularly those of those who have moved away from fundamentalism, actively dislike the word. We associate it with shame, self-punishment, and creepy sermons about hellfire. Too often, sinner is a word that frightens us away from God, rather than drawing us closer to him. We also distrust the word because we understand how easily it can be manipulated to justify one moral or political agenda over another. In some churches, sinners are people who support support abortion rights or marriage equality, while those who rape our planet and systematically exploit the poor get a pass. In others, capital S sins include hawkish foreign policy, capital punishment, and corporate greed, not loveless sex, abject social media addiction, or the toxicities of cancel culture. In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus doesn't shy away from the big bad S-word. He insists on it. He insists on the practice of acknowledging and naming our core sinfulness. He insists on the healing, cleansing, justifying power of honest confession. Why? Because honest confession relieves a burdensome secret. It tells the truth, which is that I am a beautiful mess, made in God's divine image, but mired in a human brokenness that wars against its own salvation. To use the word sinner in my prayer life is to insist on something more profound and more clarifying than I make mistakes or I've got issues. To use the word sinner is to refuse the arrogant us-them divide of the Pharisee and instead acknowledge that I too am utterly lost and bereft, 
but for the astonishing grace of God. One of the things that surprises me about Jesus' parable is that the tax collector makes his confession in the temple, right smack in the middle of a house of public prayer and worship. I wonder, are our houses of worship places where authentic confession is welcomed and practiced? Are our churches safe for sinners to tell their messy, vulnerable-making truths? Or are they better suited for the making of pious progress reports akin to the Pharisees? Are our religious structures and institutions open to the abject cries of the wretched? Or is church the place we go to shine, show off, and compare our faith-tinted trophies? Note that the tax collector in the parable does not name specific sins. He goes much deeper. He names a brokenness that is cellular, a brokenness that is central to his very being. Growing up, I was taught that sin is breaking God's laws, or missing the mark as an archer misses his target, or committing immoral acts. These definitions aren't wrong, but they only scratch the surface. They assume that sin is a problem primarily because it angers God. But God's temper is not what's at stake in my sinfulness. He's more than capable of managing his own emotions. Sin is a problem because it kills. It kills me. Sin is a refusal to become fully human. It's anything that interferes with the opening up of my whole heart to God, to others, to creation, to myself. Sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, disharmony. It's the slow accumulation of dust choking the heart. It's the sludge that slows me down that says, quit, stop walking, lie down. Change is impossible. Sin is apathy, carelessness, a frightened resistance to an engaged life. Sin is the opposite of creativity, the opposite of abundance, the opposite of coherence, the opposite of flourishing. It is a walking death, my life, precious to God, dying. What Jesus exposes in his parable is the Pharisee's compulsive need to avoid his broken inner life by policing his outer boundaries instead, deciding who is in and who is out based on his own narrow definitions of purity and piety. It's easy for us 21st century Christians to look down on his arrogance, but honestly, are we much different? Don't we behave sometimes as if we are finished products, with nothing new to discover about the Holy Spirit's excavations into our inner lives? Don't we set up religious litmus tests for each other, based on personal inclinations and pieties that have nothing to do with Jesus' open-hearted love and hospitality? Don't we fixate on the forms of religiosity we can put on display for others to applaud, instead of cultivating the secret and hidden life of God within our own souls? Don't we allow scorn, disguised as holy indignation, to take root and grow in our hearts until love sours and empathy dies? This seemingly simple parable should give us pause, especially if we are cradle Christians who have a long history with the Church. It is possible to do all manner of impressive religious things and still walk away unjustified. It is possible to allow our piety itself to deaden us to God. It is possible to pray without touching anything within us that matters. It is possible to practice an outwardly beautiful Christianity that is ashen, lifeless, and pointless in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter what specific forms our religious arrogance takes. In some churches, it centers around impressive social justice projects. 
In others, it comes down to deifying one worship style over another. In still others, it means policing the political affiliations and allegiances of parishioners. In some faith communities, the lines in the sand have to do with women clergy, or gay marriage, or racial justice, or economic equality. The guises vary, but in the end, arrogance in any guise deadens us towards God and towards our neighbors. It freezes us in time, making us irrelevant to the generations that will come after us. It makes us stingy and small-minded, cowardly and anxious. It strips away our joy and robs us of peace. It causes us, in Jesus' chilling words, to honor God with our lips, but to worship him in vain. I both love and find it maddening that Jesus does not end his parable by saying, the tax collector went forth and sinned no more. In fact, we have no idea what the man does once he leaves the temple. We never find out if he gives up his dishonest profession or returns the money he has unfairly taken from his neighbors or ends up back in the temple a week later, just as full of remorse as he was before. In other words, we have no idea if he does anything to justify God's lavish mercy towards him. And that is precisely the point. The lavish mercy of God cannot be earned. It can only be received. Confession is the opening up of our empty hands to receive the abundant mercy of God. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One preens, the other weeps. One self-protects, the other surrenders. One catalogues, the other confesses. God hears both prayers but only the honest and desperate prayer of confession changes a life. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance by Edgar Villanueva. Edgar Villanueva was born in North Carolina, is part Native American, and came of age when society was beginning to grapple with systemic issues of ethnic and racial injustices. He ended up working in the nonprofit world, where he encountered a deep-seated view of the world that, in his view, would simply perpetuate the very problems that nonprofit institutions see themselves working to eradicate. Now a sought-after speaker, Villanueva lays out his perspective in this book. Villanueva argues that injustice is a structural phenomenon that is maintained by institutions of power that are set up precisely in a way that perpetuates the structures of injustice. These structures provide the rules by which everyone is expected to play. The result is that only on rare occasions does someone in a long-oppressed group succeed in our society while playing by those rules. Nevertheless, our institutions hold up these unusual individuals as role models that prove that our system is working and accessible to all. In Villanueva's view, long-lasting societal change will occur only when those controlling these institutions are willing to give up exclusive power and share it with members of minority groups. Standard models of philanthropy are not enough. In particular, he notes that the idea of altruism already has a power structure built into it. The haves giving to the have-nots, and always on the terms of the haves. Power sharing, as well as sharing of wealth and other resources, promises to be quite difficult for all parties concerned. But on the basis of his Native American heritage, Villanueva writes that the way forward involves partnership rather than simply ceding power. There is clearly compassion in this book, but the deep critical problems are laid out starkly at their roots. For films this week, Dan reviews A Teachable Moment. 
About every 40 seconds, someone has a stroke that radically alters their life. That's about 800,000 people a year, including two of my next-door neighbors. This one-hour documentary explains the science of what happens during a stroke. The loss of blood flow to the brain, the three main signs of a stroke, facial weakness, slurred speech, loss of motor control, risk factors, common treatments, post-event complications like depression, and practical advice about lifestyle choices that will minimize the likelihood of a stroke, diet, stress, management, and exercise. The movie focuses on four stroke survivors who tell their different stories despite their similar medical condition. Mark is a successful businessman turned stroke survivor and activist. Roderick represents an uninsured, self-made symbol for recovery after two strokes. Anne is a mother, wife, and lawyer running to keep control of her future. Lee is a family man reborn to a healthier, more fulfilled life after three strokes. In the words of the film's website, this movie aims to empower viewers with the knowledge that strokes are preventable, treatable, and beatable. For more on this important subject, see the American Stroke Association. I watched this film on Amazon Streaming. And lastly, for poetry this week, Idiot Psalm 10 by Scott Cairns. Idiot Psalm 10, a psalm of Isaac, hoarsely sung. And yet again the wicked in his arrogance, in his acutely hemmed and tapered sense of self, has found sufficient opportunity to hound the lowly. And yet again, great enabler, the lowly, draped in their accustomed modesty and threadbare suits, bereft have seized the chance to suffer quietly, stage left. Therefore, now again, I puzzle why, O holy silence, why, do appear to bide unheeding some great distance hence? Why, O blithely unapparent, do you remain serenely imperceptible even to our thinning crew who stand here blinking at the sky? I have no stomach for the newspapers, no heart for the brilliant flat-screen lit catalogue of woes, though every item flickers, one admits, wondrously produced and duly sponsored. See here, the wicked boasts about his late successes, the grasping man complains that he is cheated of his share, while all the while the self-concerned continue banking largely on your accustomed reticence, and must needs let out their trousers still several measures more, having wagered well. Pinched beneath their spinning machinations and all their neat machines, we grind our teeth, yea, even as we sleep. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October 27th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.